Heavenly Father, we come before you and we humble ourselves. You are a great God and we thank you that you have given us your word and pray that you would use it this morning as we contemplate it together. And we thank you for marriage and pray that you would um, allow us, O oh Lord, to live out your principles of marriage in a way that, that uh, shines with the love of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing on the theme of the sexual relationship in marriage, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7. So let's start over. We're in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Okay, so this passage makes it clear, first of all, that um, there is in marriage, at times, a tendency to find reasons to avoid having an active sexual relationship. In this case, it may have been that some were reacting to the immorality of the world around them and sort of thinking that because the world is you know, saturated with sexuality that Christians should remove themselves from sexuality and therefore they viewed even sex within marriage as at least tainted and at best, I mean, at, at least tainted and at worst, um, you know, evil. And therefore they were viewing sex in a way that was like it should be avoided even with married couples or whatever. But the point is he anticipates that some people are going to um, have come up with reasons to avoid having a sexual relationship in marriage. And there's all kinds of reasons. There's... there's um, You know, when you deal with couples, there's all kinds of things that that are used to um, to avoid this duty, this responsibility. Now, um, you know, it is we live in a society that's not quite, but almost as sexualized as Corinth was, and uh, we have the same kinds of issues that can come up 
where people are um, feeling um, like there's almost something evil about the sexual relationship. But whatever it is, it's, it's very possible to be looking for a way out of that for whatever reason. Um, now, his so in verse 1 he says, Now concerning, concerning the things about which you wrote. So here he begins in his epistle to respond to a number of things that they wrote to him in their letter about. So he's answering questions. And one of them is this saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the word touch here is like other, you know, the sexual relationship has a thousand euphemisms that we use in place of it. Um, and this is one of them. And in fact, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That euphemism in ancient Greek literature that we have is never used in a, um, in a context of a holy marital relationship. It's only used in the context of a illicit or immoral sexual relationship. And you can see it in um, Proverbs chapter 6, in the, which is in the Septuagint, the same word, when the author says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So there again, because of, the, because of the Hebrew parallelism here, we can tell what it means when it says, whoever touches his neighbor's wife will not go unpunished. It means, you know, to go into her, which is another euphemism. It's, uh, it's almost funny how many euphemisms there are. Um, so that's the first thing. But Paul's response to that, to this uh, concept that it's good for man not to touch a woman, is not to disagree with it outright, but to say it doesn't apply in the context of marriage. He says, because of, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And there again is a euphemism. To have your own wife, to have your own husband. That's, again, talking about having them in a sexual way. Hi, Jody. The husband, he goes on to say in verse 3, must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. And then he gives them one exception. Except by agreement, for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
But this I say by way of concession, not of command. In other words, I'm not telling you to take breaks to pray. I'm just saying, if you want to, it's okay. But don't feel like I'm imposing upon you the duty of sexually fasting periodically so that you can pray. Okay, now, um, it is striking here how he... Um, how he um, speaks of this as a responsibility um, and not as a, an option. You know, you'd think, even in a Christian mindset, a lot of people would think, well, if, if the husband and the wife just didn't really enjoy each other sexually, then it would be fine for them to just choose to not have a sexual relationship. But that's, that's really not an option. Um, it is something that God wants. And, um, and you know, part of it is that, that uh, we can convince ourselves that our motives are right. And we can convince ourselves to do certain things because our motives are right. But, um, but God doesn't trust our motives, if you will. And so he's, he wants us to be committed to a healthy sexual relationship. And as, you know, and consistent with what I said, I've said before, if you want a thriving marriage, you need a thriving sexual relationship. And if you want a thriving sexual relationship, you have to give yourself to it. You have to invest in it. You have to focus on it. You have to work at it. You have to apply your imagination and your creativity to it, like you do in any area of life where you're trying to become good at something, where you're trying to make something work. Um, you know, I was reading a book and it referred to this study that somebody did. They did a massive survey of couples. And they asked, you know, what is the quality of your sexual relationship? And, uh, you know, the highest answer was, you know, basically, you know, we're just having a fantastic, thriving sexual relationship. And so... They analyzed those people and said, you know, the, you have this thriving sexual relationship. Tell us what your relationship's like. Tell us what are the things that go into that. And then, you know, they got many, many answers, but eight of them they isolated as being Almost virtual consensus, a consensus among all those people as to what that, what were the keys to that. And one of them was that they were focused. They were completely engaged. And another one was that they made it a priority. And so... You know, you don't, 
You don't become great at something unless you make it a priority. You don't become great at something unless you focus in on it. And, um, and so it's the same with the sexual relationship. And um, so um, you have, and especially, it's really easy to let your spouse be the one who's driving the sexual relationship. Um, you know, whichever one's the more interested, more initiating, to let that person, and you just, you know, sort of go along for the ride. And that's, you know, you can have a happy sexual relationship that way, but you can't have a thriving sexual relationship that way. Um, both parties have to give themselves. Now, I don't mean that both parties have to initiate all the time. The studies have shown that um, about 50% of people have um, what they call um, responsive sexual natures, and 50% have spontaneous sexual natures. So the spontaneous being the people who, who don't need anything to trigger them, they're, they're right there, you know, they think of it themselves, it's spontaneous. And uh, the other responsive means that, not that they enjoy it less, not that they are into it less, but they don't usually think of it on their own. They, they respond to someone else. Now that works great, if both parties are spontaneous, if one party's spontaneous, if you get a couple that's where both parties are responsive, then you have to uh, make adaptations because there's no one to be spontaneous. There's two people that are just waiting for some, some signal from somebody else. Well, that signal may hardly ever come. So somebody's got to step up to the plate and do it because... God says to do it, take the initiative, or whatever. Both parties, preferably, will will recognize this not only as a duty before God, but as a, as a way to enhance their marriage. So, out of out of love for the other, and out of love for us, out of love for the relationship, to uh, to step up. Um, another, you know, really remarkable thing in this, oh, let me just mention one thing in, in my, my own heart, my own past that God has convicted me of that applies to this is that I have a tendency to, uh, when, um, when there's an obstacle, I'll push, I'll do, make attempts to get rid of the obstacle. But if those attempts, after a while, are unsuccessful, I'll just abandon my effort and I'll blame the other person who's, you know, the obstacle I can't move. And I'll just basically absolve myself and move on. And, uh, and that is the kind of thing that you can easily do in this 
area of life. But, and I did that in a lot of areas of my life. I did it with my marriage. I've done it with my children. Um, but, you know, I've realized that there's just never a time, at least in those relationships, to, to just basically give up and, and blame the other person. You know, first of all, it forgets that we have a redeemer. Second of all, um, it, it gives up the creative process of trying to figure out another, another solution. If you, you know, if you are out in the middle of nowhere and your car breaks down, and, you know, you're on a dirt road. And so you're not even going to expect a police car to drive by. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to have to keep thinking. You're going to have to keep working. You're going to have to keep trying to figure out something to do. You can't just sit there and starve to death. You have to find, okay, you know, is there a way I can fix a car? Is there a way I can communicate with someone? Is there a way I can find some help around here? There's got to be something I can do, and you keep at it until you find the help, until you get the solution. Whenever you fail to do that, it means that you're willing to give up. It means that you're willing to stop. And what that means in a marriage and what that means with children is you're willing to stop loving. You're willing to live in a way that isn't helping others, isn't helping the relationship. And that's not a, ever a good place to be, is living in that kind of resolve to, to not put in effort to resolve the problem. So another remarkable thing about this passage is what it says about um, consent and, and about um, how uh, we already covered that um, it says that there's consequences to abstaining here it refers to immorality and that is certainly you know true it's a, it's a one important way that that we can help each other to resist the temptations that are all around us is to have a thriving sexual relationship. Um, I, I've told the story before of Vesta Sproul, R.C. Sproul's wife. And, um, you know, we knew them, you know, very early on in his ministry. Um, and uh, it, I was always impressed by her because she was always on his arm. And if you knew R.C. Sproul, he was very charming, very funny. You know, he's a, I'm sure he was a cool kid in high school because that's just who he was. He's good in sports and, you know, he just was comfortable with himself, very articulate. So uh, just the kind of person who could easily be an object of uh, temptation from other women. But Vesta Sproul hung around him 
like a magnet. And, and when, she, when he died, I wrote her a letter just thanking her for this. I never got a response back. But, I, but you know, the fact is, think about what damage would have been done to the kingdom if he had been, you know, tripped up in this way. And, you know, I don't know any inside information, but I can tell you that um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to see that she gets a lot of the credit for, for the good example and the shining light that he was because she was always there ready to um, be his and so, you know, there are many, there were gatherings and meetings. All the men came together, and it was like everybody's alone except R.C. Sproul. Vesta was there with him. And uh, it was, so anyway, that, and, and you know, it, it works both ways. I, I've heard one Hollywood actor say, you know, why should I. Uh, go out to a restaurant and get hamburger when I can have filet mignon at home. And, you know, he's, there's something at home that's better than anything he can get outside. And, and that comes, again, from investing and from cultivating. It doesn't come from just clicking. Clicking works for a while, but it doesn't, it's no long-term solution. There's also a great scene in It's a Wonderful Life um, where the men, you know, the taxi driver and the police officer um, and George Bailey are standing there talking and this floozy comes along. I can't remember her name, the blonde one. And, uh, you know, so she... And, she walks off and they're all looking at her as she walks off. And then the taxi driver says to the others, he says, well, I think I'm going to go home and check in on the missus. <laughs> and I think it goes over a lot of people's heads. <laughs> but I think that's what was going on. You know, it was like, I have a place to go <laughs> when I'm assaulted by, um, you know, by the, the things that are out there. You can't avoid it. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. Um, now, obviously, you can't always be available. You can't always say yes. There's, you know, there are times of life where it's just not going to happen. Um, and, you know, no one should, should virtually ever sort of insist on it. But the fact is we only have a certain amount of capital. If you are saying no so much that it looks like you're looking for an excuse, then there's a real problem. So say no when you need to, but, and I, you know, obviously... He says, your spouse has authority over your body. And, uh, and so, yes, technically, 
we don't really have the authority to say no, but any spouse who really cares about his spouse or her spouse is going to be willing to hear, oh, this isn't really a good time. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about. But um, just realize that you have to do that rarely and not always. It's not like, okay, I always happen to not feel well, happen to be too tired, happen to have a headache, happen to you know, have to get up in the morning. Every time the other person's interested, you know, there's something I come up with that's not, that justifies me. Um, there are, it just begins to look like you're not really interested in having a thriving sex relationship with your spouse. And what if they're relational issues? Well, that's what I said. Those are the biggest stumbling blocks. But if you just are willing to live with those relational issues and not work them out, then it seems like you don't really care. So you've got to work on it, even if it's messy, even if it is traumatizing to deal with it, because some people, it's trauma to have conflicts, trauma to talk about things and try to resolve your issues. And they just have peaceful coexistence where they never go deep, and they're just always shallow, just polite, but there's never really much there in their relationship. Because they're always wanting to avoid anything that's difficult. So, you know, just because you have relational problems doesn't mean that you don't have something you can do. Um, it's, it's an amazing passage, the egalitarianism that's here. How it says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There, there's no sense that, there's, that the man is in charge when it comes to the marital bed. They're in charge of each other. You, when you get married, you give yourself, you pledge yourself to your spouse. I'm yours. My body is yours. And that's the way to live. Um, okay, well, our time is up, and I want to let you two couples go off and talk about this. Um, and again, you know, part of the great thing about having a Sunday school class like this is because it, it uh, forces couples to talk about stuff that it's not easy for every couple to talk about. So take advantage of this and, and plunge in, talk about your own relationship and how these things relate to you. Hopefully, you know, you can just give yourself a whole line of A pluses and not have to say that, that there's anything that really uh, exposes a problem, but maybe not. And if, you, if it is all A pluses, then after you finish that process, just spend time thanking the Lord for his grace and mercy. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Please bless uh, each relationship that's a part of this.
And uh, please protect us from the evil one and help us to thrust ourselves in love into our relationship, into our marriages, into our, um, the oneness that you've given to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.